hello everybody. Um, I'm Debbie Stanistreet and uh, I'm Faculty Director for Widening Participation at University of Liverpool and I'm going to present a piece of work. My name is first on this but actually that's a bit of a lie. Um, this work was actually carried out by Tamara Teeley, who's one of my PhD students, and she knows it a lot more intimately than I do. Um, but unfortunately, she wasn't able to, to be here today to present it herself. So I will do my best to, to do it justice on her behalf. Um, Tammy actually did a PhD on widening participation at the university, and it was a mixed methods PhD. And the first two quantitative studies she looked at were very similar to some of the, um, the work that Mans has just been presenting, looking at progress of WP students, both uh, within the university in general and also specifically within um, our medical school. But actually what, we're going to, what I'm going to present to you today is the qualitative part of, of um, her study. And um, this is a piece of work that was actually... Uh, conducted in 2015 and, and some of you may have seen it already because it's been published in the British Educational Research Journal and uh, it doesn't have a very, the actual paper itself doesn't have um, a very pithy title, it's called Experience of Disadvantage, the Influence of Identity on Engagement in Working Class Students, Educational Trajectories to an Elite University. So very briefly, where's, I can't find the down key on here, where are we, let me just do that, does that work, no? Uh, here, right, okay, so you can tell I'm a Mac user, I'm absolutely hopeless with, with anything else. Okay, so very briefly I'll just take you through the background of the study, some of the literature that most of you will be familiar with, and also the aim and objectives. Uh, I'll talk you through through the methods that she used, but I want to concentrate more on the findings and the relevance relevance of those findings because although I'm an academic as a as a WP director, I'm quite interested in how we apply those in practice in terms of of what what we want to do. Um, so as I say, most of you will probably be familiar with this, but. We do know that the proportion of students from disadvantaged backgrounds who go to elite universities, and we're generally talking about Russell Group universities there, it has actually remained quite flat over the past decade. And that's despite the fact that actually millions of pounds are being invested every year to widen access into higher education. We know that these students are more likely to live in disadvantaged areas. They're more likely to attend poorly performing schools um, and they're more likely to, to come from families where no one has previously attended university before. Um, and as a result, they're 6.3 times more, less likely to enter a Russell Group institution compared to their more affluent peers. However, despite all that, and despite the odds, some of these, some of these WP students do, are actually successful in gaining a place at a Russell Group university. And there's very limited research that has actually explored the reasons for this. So how do some people succeed despite the odds and, and, and why do they do that? And also, what happens when they get there? Do we just assume that once they've arrived, uh, we're, we're on to a level playing field? Um, so Tammy was interested in carrying out some research that was able to shed a light on some of this. 
to understand why some students might succeed uh, and what the barriers and facilitators might be to coming into a Russell Group University for more disadvantaged students. So these were the aim, this was the aim of the study, it was to, to actually explore how socioeconomically disadvantaged students perceived their experiences, we were particularly interested in their perspectives on this. And it was about the educational trajectory right the way through from primary school into university. And specifically, um, we wanted to look at any common themes among those students and also any differences in how they perceive those background characteristics. And then to look at how those factors, whether they were barriers or facilitators, might actually be seen as being influential through those, that educational trajectory. So, uh, in terms of the methodological approach, um, this, Tammy actually took a phenomenological approach to this and she wanted to have quite a wide theoretical lens to what she was doing. Um, the, so it was all about the frames of reference within which young people were operating and for that reason um, she wanted to really explore the subjective, the lived experience of those students themselves so she didn't want to apply any kind of a priori analytic framework to, to, to that analysis. Now, generally speaking with phenomenological studies, um, they tend to rely very much on in-depth interviews to collect data. So we used a semi-structured interview for this. And also we used a narrative approach. And that was really because in this case we were particularly interested in people's personal stories. So taking them through telling us that story, that biographical story for them from going through school right the way to that journey for them of actually sort of arriving in higher education. So this is just to tell you a little bit about, about the methods. Um, there were 76 students who were contacted by email initially and they were all students who were part of our supported admissions programme. So that's a, a programme which is called the Scholars Programme. I'm sure most universities have something similar. Uh, they're students who come from the Merseyside area who fulfil a number of criteria for being WP students based on um, their parents' uh, income, being first in, in, uh, in, line to, in, in their family to go to university, etc. So they're already screened um, as part of the Scholars Programme. And 13 students responded to that and subsequently took part in the study. And then thematic analysis was used to actually analyse the narratives. Um, and from that, Tammy actually identified two main themes which were interlinked. And those themes were identity and in educational engagement. And I'll just say at this point as well, Tammy's actually a psychologist. I'm not. I'm an epidemiologist. Um, so for those of you who are in the room who are psychologists, you'll perhaps, uh, you know, you, you might want to take over at some point and start telling me uh, what I should be saying. But, but, um, but this was this was obviously, as I say, it was Tammy's analysis. So from a psychological perspective, those were the issues that she saw was in, that were important: identity and engagement. And of course, we need to also be aware that this is all in the in the whole context of students who come from. Um, disadvantaged backgrounds so we've already got a structural context within which to to analyze that data and there were three sub themes that were, were identified from that self-appraisal the way students actually appraise themselves the social comparisons the way they compare themselves to, to others and also expectations those were the expectations of themselves but also the way that they saw 
the expectations of, of others, be it teachers or parents, which were actually uh, extremely revealing, and um, I'll, I'll come to that later. The second thing was around educational engagement. Uh, for those of you that have done any research in this area, this is just a definition that can be used. Um, it's, the, it's around individuals' involvement in education and the effort that they devote to educationally purposeful activities. Now, of course, generally speaking with research, we try and look at objective ways of measuring these kind of things. And in terms of educational engagement, it's quite common to measure class participation, uh, to measure attendance, which of course we all know now is a big indicator in secondary schools, and also some measure of effort that's devoted to, to schoolwork or, or learning. So any kind of hidden indicators of engagement may well be missed within this kind of model for, for looking at um, educational engagement, because as I'll talk about in a little while, it can actually be a little bit invisible. Now, as I've mentioned previously, identity and engagement are actually linked. So um, the sources of disadvantage that these students actually discussed, they were linked, obviously, to their identities, the way they saw their identities, but also their identities were linked and affected their educational engagement. And some of, some of the way that it affected their educational engagement was positive, and in other ways it was also negative. So we'll look at both of those. So, in terms of self-appraisal, self-appraisal and, and social class identity, the thing about social class is that it's not necessarily a salient or visible part of, of somebody's identity. And also, of course, we all have differences in the, our awareness of, of those visible and invisible, invisible differences that we associate with social class. So it does very much depend on those social factors. Um, the, the kind of things that the students discussed in terms of social class and sources of disadvantage uh, unsurprisingly included things like material hardship, uh, schooling, their peer groups and in many cases quite um, difficult and unstable family circumstances. So here Rachel's saying you know, she was very aware of this, we didn't have the right clothes the right phones or the right channels on our TV. I never blamed anyone about it, like it's no one's fault, but there was this sense of otherness or, or difference. And I, I think this second quote is, is very meaningful. It's probably a, a quote that really stood out for me. Their family problems seemed so menial. I was like, why is that even a problem? They were generally happier as well. And actually I have to say, some of these transcripts when I read them, they moved me to tears because I could not believe that these kids had actually got to a Russell Group university, given the kind of issues that they were dealing with on the way. And it, it really brought to life why they might see the kind of issues that some of these middle classes were, that were middle class students were dealing with were actually non-issues as far as, as, as they could see. Uh, the other, one of the other issues in relation to self-appraisal was about hard work, this idea of, of working hard. And these students all emphasised the importance of being able to work hard and achieve high grades in ways that they suggested that this was like a positive marker of their identity. So it distinguished them from other people. 
This particular example here, Daniel, he's a student who came to the UK as an asylum seeker from Somalia. When he arrived at the age of 10, he didn't speak any English at all. And for him, the hard work was, was absolutely imperative, this issue between identity and engagement. Here you can see he, he got the nickname of, of Extra. So uh, whereas they didn't care, I wanted to get a good grade. Good grade. And because of that, they, they nicknamed me. Some of my, my friends actually called me Extra because I was doing this extra work. And he kind of, he took that on board and he was all right with that as a positive marker of his identity. This is what he... He, he stood for, but for some kids, as you can imagine, in inner city comprehensives, that wasn't necessarily the path that they chose in order to, to deal with that. Again, in terms of uh, social comparisons, the way that these students compared themselves with others, um, they differentiated their own level of engagement and, and also their commitment to education, how hard they worked, how much they cared about their grades, from that of their peer groups. So for most of them, they were suggesting that their peer groups in general didn't work hard and saw investment in education in a very negative way. Um, so in a sense, if for some of them, if they were investing in education, it had undesirable social consequences as well. And for, for many of them, that was quite a cost. So although they all cared about the grades, the extent to which they could actually outwardly show that differed considerably. So here we can see Lisa saying, you know, you'd have people in my year that would just take the piss if you, try, if you did try to do work. And because I wanted to, that was what, what they did. So some of these students actually deliberately hid their engagement from their peer group because they didn't want to be bullied or they didn't want to be socially uh, excluded. And that had a cost to it as well, thinking about this, how we were talking about objective measures of engagement because it often resulted in those students having low expectations as far as their teachers or their parents were concerned and their, mis their academic potential actually being quite misjudged. So in terms of expectations related to identity, following on from that last point, several students actually described <coughs> others' low expectations of them so their attempts to dissuade them from taking particularly challenging subjects at school, for instance, then to go, to go to college rather than higher education. And they had an awareness, these students had an awareness of how others perceived them as members of a group, um, a group that was less likely to do well. And as you can see, this is David talking again, they thought I would not do well because of who I am. Uh, and Kate saying, my mum didn't want me to go really, she just thought I wouldn't fit in there because her, one of her friend's sons went and got bullied there and because he was like, he didn't fit in with the people and all that. So her family was actually telling her that. And in fact, one of the quotes that isn't included here that I thought was very telling as well was a, a teacher talking to a sixth form student who, this sixth form, the, the teacher said to the student, he was head of sixth form, she said she was applying to Liverpool University and he said to her, don't apply to Liverpool, it's not for the likes of you, apply for John Moores. And that was what, in, internally she said to herself right I'm going to Liverpool University the fact that you've said that is enough to make me sh absolutely sure that that's what I'm going to do so it kind of had a positive and a, a negative um, impact as well so just following on from that um, 
Lisa describes struggling with significant uh, obstacles related to her very unsettled living circumstances. She had family problems, uh, abuse, drug-related problems in the family, lack of support, and also material hardship, which obviously had an impact on her educational trajectory. And like others, she felt that the teachers were actually very unaware of what she was dealing with at home and uh, her difficulties. And as a result, had very low expectations of her academic ability. I think I've jumped forward here, so I'll just take you to Lisa. I'll let you read that. Oh, sorry, I think this is the quote. I might just have told you that. So actually, in, in Lisa's circumstances, um, her her mother was a, her mother had a serious drug abuse problem, and she was moved constantly from women's shelter to women's shelter, and she had to change schools something ridiculous like eleven times during her her schooling. And quite often, when she was moved to school, there would be several months where she wouldn't be able to attend until they'd found her a place at a, a local school. So. When you think about a sixth form teacher telling her you won't get into this university, how determined some of these kids really are to, to, to prove people wrong, which I, I think is, is exemplary, really. Okay, so just moving on in terms of, and thinking about that in, in terms of low attendance, again, thinking about how we measure engagement, when, when kids at school don't attend it's often seen as disengagement and it's taken being as being about apathy um, whereas students like Lisa were obviously describing situations beyond their control where it was not possible for her to attend um, and you can just see here with with um, Kate you know it made me angry I was already frustrated with the school and then it just made me more more reluctant to go in but more determined to do well so Kate actually she carried out all her all her studying at home without going into school, then went in and got eight GCSEs. And of course, everybody was extremely shocked. But it was the only way that she could make the system work for her because of the bullying that was going on at school and because of the fact that she was being, there was such a pressure on her not not to, to, to study or, or to work. How am I doing for time? Am I all right? Okay. Um, so this, this issue about hidden engagement, um, if engagement is not as easily observable, it does result in low expectations and it results in students' academic abilities actually being misjudged. Now, the low expectations of students described in this study, they're not atypical of WP students, if you're familiar with the literature, and they may also be re reflected in uh, generally underestimated predicted grades for working class students from less successful state schools compared to their independent school counterparts. So it, this, this may be a bigger issue than we realise. And as such, this might actually represent quite an important barrier to other students from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds. And it could actually help to explain why they're less likely to apply to and attend elite universities compared to students from more affluent backgrounds. Because remember in this study, we were only talking to students who had successfully made it through. So for each of these students, there would be an awful lot more students who've been in this situation and have not yet got to university and perhaps never will as a result of, of their circumstances.
One of the other things that was quite important for these students was, was utilitarian engagement. So, and this can influence the way that students from disadvantaged background actually weigh up criteria evaluating about whether or not to attend higher education. So although in this case our students' motivations actually varied quite widely, they all discussed the importance of achieving high grades and attending university as a reason to improve their current circumstances. So here Lauren's saying, you know, university was my getaway plan. I really didn't enjoy it at home. So that was quite an important motivating factor. And from a utilitarian perspective, it was seen as a means of escaping those actual difficulties at home. And then in terms of impact on social circumstances, often there were very challenging social social situations that would obviously contribute to this as well. It would contribute to school disaffection, it would con contribute to periods of withdrawal and also to um, poor attendance as well. So despite these kids being strongly motivated to succeed and to maintain a level of control over their trajectories, that wasn't always possible. But they, all these kids found different ways to negotiate those challenges. Um, and, but you can actually also see how it affected their education engagement at that time. So, moving on now to um, look at, I feel like I've lost my place. We're on to implications of findings, so just one second while I find myself again. Which I can't do. Okay, let's just, let's just go through these. Implications of findings. So, first of all, thinking about identity and decision-making. These identity-related barriers that we've talked about, like low expectations, uh, particularly negative group stereotypes, and this fear of not fitting in, can actually have quite an impact on decision-making processes. And it might actually explain some of these different trends in participation particularly the kind of institution that these students might apply to uh, when it comes to going to university. And of course, as many of us will be familiar with, for those students who are not in this group, it also will contribute to educational dis disengagement and disaffection at school. So quite often what we do see with WP students is that they're less likely to follow this linear pathway, this 16 to 18 doing A-levels, into university and into higher education at, at 18. So we might find that they do go into further education, they perhaps take a BTEC, they might take longer to do their A-levels etc. And just off uh, in, in thinking about that, I think personally that's one of the um, downfalls of any of you who are involved in NCOP that we're missing out on here. NCOP is all focused on 18 to 19 year olds and a lot of these kids actually probably won't be ready to go to university for another two, three years because of the kind of barriers and obstacles they've had to face. So I, I hope at some point Hefke are going to um, recognise that and, uh, and act accordingly. Um, in terms of, of other implications, actually being first in the family, it can actually for some kids be a source of motivation, but for other students it can be a disadvantage and obviously parents also have some sort of um, 
you know, parents have some sort of say in that, depending on their views of, of higher education and how they talk to their children about the opportunities that there might be there. So parents and teachers are absolutely key. I mean, I'm teaching my grandmother to suck out here, you all know this, but it came over very strongly from these students that, that the influence and the impact that parents and teachers had had, both positively and negatively, on, on their situations. And actually, a lot of the guidance that these kids got was very, very limited and very contradictory. Uh, there were two participants in this study out of, of <coughs> 13 who hadn't even heard about going to university until they were in year 12. They were in the lower sixth before it, they even knew about going. I mean, I think that's shocking. I think that's really shocking. And I, it tells you something about the kind of information, advice and guidance that we're offering at the moment in secondary schools. And for those of us who are working in WP now, you know, we, we're all familiar with the evidence that tells us that the earlier in this process we start, the more important it is. And we need to, again, with NCOP, but everything else, all, all the kind of um, core WP work that we're doing, to make sure that we do have this red thread that runs right the way through from primary school, so that kids are aware of what their opportunities might be at that stage. And the other thing is, going to university for WP families is often seen as a practical expense as well. So. Firstly, they won't be contributing to, to family expenses. Even if, if your child goes on to an apprenticeship, they will at least be earning some money and be able to pay their bus fare and contribute something towards the family budget. Um, but if, if children go on to university, then even with that accessing loans, they will still have to find some sort of money to, to live on during that period of time. And of course, that's an extra burden for families who have um, very low incomes. And in terms of long-term negative effects, we found that the, those barriers for students didn't necessarily end when they got to university. So for, for many of these students, once they arrived, they still felt like they were other, uh, you know, particularly in certain subjects. Like one of the students in, in this study um, was a, a care leaver who went into medicine, one of the very few, because we don't, we don't see many of them. But he really felt very, very different from his peers. And of course, that has implications for uh, going back to Mansa's study around feelings of a sense of belonging within the university and how important that is uh, to, to student trajectory throughout higher education. Um, and also, this, these, these identity related barriers don't go away. So you don't arrive at university and suddenly get rid of that feeling that you're part of this group that we're less likely to do well. It stays with you. And that's something that for those of us who are, who are based in universities need to think about in terms of student experience and how we support students during their trajectory through higher education. So just to conclude, um, you can see very clearly that the students' narratives very clearly show these sources of disadvantage that are associated with hardship, uh, with their schooling, with their peer groups, and very, very difficult family circumstances. But they do provide insight into, for me, definitely, the subjectivity of disadvantage, because for most of us, although I don't come from a particularly privileged background, I had never really experienced some of the hardships that these students were 
were articulating. It really was beyond my personal experience. Um, and that in itself was very eye-opening to, to me when you think about the kind of support we should be offering them now. And I think also the way that it's actually, it actually has positive and negative effects on engagement is, is important. Um, but these obviously do impact on student outcomes and the ways that they make decision-making, where they make decisions about going into higher education. So thinking about those students who haven't gone into higher education, what can we learn from this as, as you know, the types of outreach that we should be doing with 16 to 18 year olds? Um, and as I've said, you know, these, these sources of disadvantage, they don't disappear when students enter higher education. So recommendations, as I've said, outreach is very important, but it needs to be there at a, an early stage. Um, we need to understand a lot more about engagement and hidden engagement due to social factors and make sure that that's not leading us to misjudging potential, academic potential of, of students. And we need to provide much greater guidance and access to information. And that's both to teachers and also parents. I mean, I, I, or again, I was quite shocked to hear some of the stories about the kind of advice that students had been given by teachers. And again, for those of you invo involved in NCOP, working with teachers and parents might be a very important way of putting into practice some of these issues. Um, and then, as I've mentioned, more transitional support is required into HE for disadvantaged students. I think for some of, for some of you here, you might actually be ahead of the game with that. Um, for us, as a Russell Group University, I don't think it's something that we have necessarily put um, a lot of emphasis on, or enough emphasis, I should say, on in the past. Uh, following on from this work, we've carried out a piece of work around for B looking at BTEC students and looking at access and transition during that first year at university. And it's become very clear to us that BTEC students, they tend to be a WP group. Um, they tend to do significantly less well when they arrive at university and that we as an institution need to be doing a lot more to support them and that support might be uh, pastoral support but it also might be academic support if they're coming in with a BTEC rather than A-level qualifications. So we're now in the early stages of thinking about what system we should be putting in place to provide that kind of support during that first year and that's for all WP students and students who are coming in with non-traditional qualifications um, and at the moment there are a number of off-the-shelf options that can be used but there also needs to, we, we also need to work hard to make sure that the, the pastoral support is very clearly in, in place and that our academic staff have a good understanding of the sort of support that these students might need when they arrive and particularly during their first year at university. So that's something that we're in the place of doing now. So um, I think that's all I want to say. Uh, happy to take whatever questions. Thank you.